and welcome to another episode of the Royal College of Pathologists podcast, Pathologists in Profile. This podcast series is kindly sponsored by SIRDAN, improving well-being through innovation. My name is Natasha Cutmore and I'm a histopathology trainee. In this episode, we'll be finding out about the life and career of our podcast guest, consultant forensic pathologist, Dr. Matt Seeker. The word pathology often conjures images from TV shows such as CSI. While most television pathologists are forensic pathologists, in reality, forensic pathologists make up less than 1% of pathologists. This is a very small number and fewer than about 100 people in the UK. Matt initially studied medicinal chemistry before going on to study medicine at the University of Kiel. He completed his foundation training in Scotland then moved to Liverpool to specialise in forensic pathology. Matt completed his training and became a consultant in 2020. He has since been working in the southeast, where he combines forensic home office autopsy work with coroner's postmortems. It sounds like you've been very busy, Matt. Thank you for joining us on the Pathologists in Profile podcast. Hi, Natasha. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So Matt, during childhood, you were always interested in science. Who inspired you at home? So neither of my parents were uh, in a scientific field, but both of them could see that I had a real passion for science um, and they were very keen to indulge that. Um, I was surrounded by science books um, and I was obsessed with kind of animals and animal programs and science programs on the television. I think I've uh, attended every probably visited every zoo in the country over the years um, I was really inspired as well by my mother who was um, a police officer and I think her stories about what she used to do and what she used to encounter at work were the first kind of seeds that started my interest in forensic pathology um, the interplay between science and the law is the basis of much of what we do as a forensic pathologist Mm, and that sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, so something that we often talk about in the podcast is how things don't always go according to plan. What was your first degree? So my first degree was in uh, medicinal chemistry and biology. Um, I planned to study medicine straight from my A-levels, but I just didn't make the grades. Um, and I was told a few times I should probably forget about it because um, I just hadn't got the grades essentially to do it and it was quite disheartening at the time but because I really enjoyed chemistry and biology I thought this is the kind of natural choice um, to take me forward um, and that's that's really how I ended up doing that degree and it was a really really enjoyable experience. Oh good and what did you learn about yourself during this time? So I think as many people do um, going to university is the first time that you become really independent um, and I actually really enjoyed being able to plan my own time. Um, and I quickly realized that uh, actually studying a topic that you're interested in is a lot easier um, and a lot more enjoyable, actually. And um, by the end of my first year of the degree, I sort of knew that I still wanted to do medicine. And actually, it was a possibility and that I hopefully was going to be able to do it in the future. And that's that's basically where I went next. Yeah. And that's great that you didn't listen to the doubters and that... Um you took that time to make sure that that really was what you wanted to do. Um, and like you said, you were successful. You went on to study medicine at the University of Kiel. Can you tell us about the anatomy room and the impact this experience had on your future career? 
So I was very lucky because when I started at Keele, it was a brand new medicine course and there were fewer students than most other medicine courses and many of the facilities in the buildings were new. Um, Keele has a fantastic anatomy suite and this essentially is a suite where uh, persons who donate their body to science um, are dissected essentially and it allows us to actually examine a whole body and we can physically see the muscles, the organs, the vessels um, and this is so much of a, a you know, better way of learning than actually just reading textbooks and looking at pictures of things. I found it hugely valuable to be able to actually dissect um, the human body. Um, and clearly having an interest in pathology, it just made the whole process even more fascinating. Um, I loved this, um, being able to look inside somebody and find out the answers. And obviously that, that has come into play with my pathology career as well. And that's definitely something that I valued at my time at uni as well. What other experiences at university really cemented your career aspirations? So I think I was very lucky because Keele has a very good pathology teaching department. Um, and there was a passionate team of pathologists that used to come in every week and give us sessions on different areas of the body. They used a case-based kind of teaching um, process. So essentially, we would look at the patient, the clinical symptoms the patient was experiencing, and then the pathology behind those symptoms. And so it, built, it really brought it to life. I also had the opportunity to observe post-mortems as well, which I know is something that doesn't happen so much on other medical courses nowadays. Um, and we also had um, an input from a local coroner who ran a mock inquest one day, which was uh, a fascinating kind of experience. I also had the chance to do a special study module during my degree in pathology, which was sort of the final thing that really confirmed that that's what I wanted to do. Oh, amazing. So it sounds like you had a really good broad pathology education as part of your medical degree. After completing your medical degree, you moved to Scotland for your foundation training before then moving to Liverpool. Could you explain the forensic pathology training pathway, please? So pathology training begins straight from foundation training. So foundation training is the two years of being a clinical junior doctor straight out of university. You then do two years of general histopathology training. So histopathology is where essentially you study tissues under the microscope. Um, you do carry out some post-mortems during this time, but much of the time is spent familiarising yourself with histology. So that is, again, tissues under the microscope. And although you do that at medical school, you don't do it in any of the needed detail that you have to have to be a, a general histopathologist. Um, and looking at things under the microscope is a fundamental part of forensic pathology. General histopathologists examine most of the tissues that are taken from the body, including all the surgical samples and biopsies. So there is a huge amount of um, tissue to look at, essentially. Once you've completed your at least two years of basic histopathology training, you then have to do three and a half years of specialist training in forensic pathology. And during that training, you do uh, lots of post-mortem examinations, but you also observe and assist with forensic post-mortem examinations as well. You have the opportunity to attend Crown Court and see consultants giving evidence. You attend crime scenes with the consultants. Um, and then at the end of all this process, you sit your Royal College of Pathologists examinations. Brilliant. Thank you for explaining that for us. Completing your exams is only the beginning, though. What happens after you pass your exams? 
So after you pass your exam, you have a period of around six months where you have the ability to develop your skills and performing postmortems independently and basically learning how to be a consultant. If you work in England and Wales, you then need to apply to join the Home Office list of approved forensic pathologists. To do this, you also have to do a number of other courses, such as crime scene management courses, expert witness training, and then you are assigned a mentor, a consultant mentor, who looks after you for your first year of being a consultant. And what does the role of a forensic pathologist actually entail? So as a forensic pathologist, your role basically is to examine the bodies of a deceased patient and determine both why they died and if a third party is responsible for their death. These deaths can include such things as murders, quite obviously, but also things like road traffic collisions, uh, neglect cases, and also health and safety-related deaths. The process uh, essentially is to provide evidence for court. So it's either a coroner's court in the case um, of an unnatural death, or in the case of a murder, it would be a crown court. Um, and you also have the opportunity as well to examine living people, either directly or via photographs, um, because we are asked to determine how they've been injured. And again, that's for use in court. So much of the time is, is spent performing post-mortem examinations, but we also spend a lot of time discussing cases with colleagues or the police, attending court, and most commonly we are writing reports a lot of the time. Um, we do attend crime scenes, but not as regularly as it's portrayed in the media. Wow, that is so much more diverse than even I imagined. So thank you for giving us that insight. Something our listeners may not know about is the role of the coroner and how coroner's autopsies or postmortems are different to those conducted for the Home Office. Could you explain the difference for us, please? So a coroner is usually a legally qualified individual who's responsible for investigating the death of any person who dies within their area. Um, and the coroner is the person that actually instructs a pathologist to conduct a post-mortem examination. In most cases, a coroner's post-mortem is performed where a death certificate can't be issued. And that's because either the cause of death is unknown or it may be unnatural. A coroner's post-mortem only takes place, though, when the circumstances are not suspicious. So there's no evidence that somebody else is involved in the death. If there is evidence that someone else is involved, then there will be a home office forensic post-mortem. Um, and that's where the police are involved, essentially. And so the police ask permission from the coroner to conduct a home office post-mortem. And then the permission is granted. And essentially, then it's up to us to perform that examination and decide if there is evidence of a third party being involved. The forensic postmortem is much more involved than a coroner's postmortem. We have a formal police briefing, we do sampling of the body, we take lots and lots of photographs, and we do extra dissections that we may not do in a routine postmortem. We also take further samples and organs, uh, much more than we would do in a standard postmortem. Wow. And how does having the blend of uh, the coroner's and the home office work benefit your experience? So I really enjoy doing both types of cases. The forensic work is all about injuries and the reconstruction of the events that led up to someone's death. Um, and many of the forensic cases are very interesting, but they don't have any natural pathology because sadly many of the people are young when they die. 
it means that you miss out on all of the kind of training essentially that you've done so learning about heart lung disease liver disease you you don't tend to see it in the forensic cases and i think i would miss that if i didn't also do the coroner's work because the coroner's work is very much about the natural pathology so determining what natural pathology has caused the death and it's also the kind of surprise that you get when you do a coroner's post-mortem because in many of the cases where it's a murder uh, it's obvious what the cause of death is likely to be. So, for instance, it will be stab wounds or head injuries or something. Whereas with the coroner's postmortems, you genuinely have no idea a lot of the time before you have a look inside the body what is going to be the cause of death. And I find that fascinating. That's really cool. So in all aspects of pathology, we come across grey areas. For most of us, this means that a result is neither positive or negative. But in forensic pathology, deciding either way can have a huge impact on the future of the accused party. How do you learn to cope with these grey area cases? So these cases are some of the hardest that we deal with. We have a, a great responsibility as a forensic pathologist for leading the police down a particular route. So if we say to them that this is a murder, then they will investigate it as a murder. And if we say it's not, then the investigation will stop at that point. And clearly making that decision is very, very important. I think experience really helps dealing with these cases. The more times you've seen injuries, the more times you've seen pattern of injuries, it helps you decide whether it is a murder or not. But it's also about taking all of the circumstances into consideration. So how were they found? Where were they found? The results of other investigations are important as well. So we ask other people to help us. Um, and as part of getting other people's involvement, what other investigations can you request as part of the process? So we are supported by a number of other experts, um, including people like neuropathologists. So a neuropathologist is a specialist at looking at brain and spinal cords. And essentially they determine whether there is significant brain injury or not. They also can tell us if there's underlying disease within the brain or central nervous system. We can send hearts off to cardiac pathologists who are specialists at looking at heart disease and determining if there is underlying uh, inherited cardiac disease, for instance. We can send bones off to osteoarticular pathologists who, again, are specialists at looking at bones. And they can tell us, for instance, how old a fracture is and what the likely cause was. We also send, on very many of our cases, toxicology samples away, and the toxicologist is an expert at interpreting drugs and alcohol levels and determining whether that has an impact on death or not. That's fascinating. And beyond um, sort of scientific and medical personnel, who else do you work with and how do you maintain rapport in these really difficult cases? So our closest partners in all these cases are the police um, and the crime scene managers or the CSI, as they used to be known. In difficult cases, they do expect a lot of you. Um, and it can be difficult to try and manage that balance of not being able to give them all of the answers at that point. So what I do is I try and be as honest as I can about what I can and can't say and what I am likely to be able to say or not say. Um, and I try and highlight to them which findings I think are suspicious and which are not suspicious. And then hopefully that gives them a realistic expectation of, of what's going to happen with the case at the end. 
Um, we can also involve other people. So scientists that attend the scene can be really helpful in determining what the blood pattern analysis tells them about what's happened to the deceased. Wow, that's really interesting. So your line of work brings you into contact with situations that most of us couldn't even begin to imagine. How do you retain faith in humanity when faced with this? I think the individuals that we work with are key to maintaining our sanity, essentially. Um, we have a very close working relationship, as I said before, with the police and crime scene investigators. And I think what we all do is we do acknowledge when a case is really horrific or shocking and that sort of brings the humanity back into the situation. I think the other thing about it as well is that seeing the police investigation and demonstrate how society doesn't accept this behaviour, um, that kind of restores your faith um, in, in society in general. Um, we will not tolerate people committing horrendous crimes, um, and that's, that's sort of very reassuring when you're, when you're doing these kind of cases. And many people will have misconceptions about forensic pathology, usually based on what they see on TV. Could you tell us about the role of the pathologist in court? So one of the most important things about being a forensic pathologist is that you are an independent witness. And that basically means that you are there to give the evidence to the jury to explain the pathology. You are not there to represent either the prosecution or defence. You are just there to be an impartial witness and give your opinion. Um, on TV, there's an idea that pathologists get involved in the investigation. You know, they interview witnesses, they track down suspects. And that would certainly interfere with our independence if we actually got involved in things like that. We can also only express an opinion based on evidence. So, for instance, if there is no evidence to support an idea, then we can't then present that idea in court because it's it's not right. Um, and if we don't know what the cause of death is and we can't say what it is beyond a certain level of doubt, then we have to say that. How important is it to be able to explain medical processes to a lay court and how do you achieve this? The most important thing about the job that we do is making sure that the jury understand the evidence that we're giving particularly when it comes to their deliberations at the end of the trial. Um, it can be sometimes very difficult to explain detailed pathology to a jury. It's the same as if, I, if somebody reads me a sentence with lots of technical words in it. After the first couple of words, I potentially will lose interest in the sentence because I just don't understand. And so when we read a very detailed paragraph describing injuries to a particular area of the body, I suspect that many jury members might start to switch off at some point. I think the way to deal with it is, first of all, to break things down, so to try and explain things as you go on through the sentence, but also to try and remember what the point of what you're trying to say is. For instance, there can be many ways that a brain can be injured, and those ways are very complex and will be presented uh, very nicely within the neuropathology report, but again, not really something that the jury can understand every point of. So I think the way to deal with that is just to to understand that what we need to get across the jury is how significant the head injuries were and what the most likely mechanism was that caused those head injuries. Brilliant. Um, thank you for explaining that. Hobbies and interests outside of work are really important. What do you like to do outside of work? So I do quite a lot of fitness training. I enjoy running um, and go to the gym quite a lot. I also do quite a lot of walking, actually. I tend to walk between cases as well, which I really enjoy. 
I find a both a great they're both a great way to get a break from work because it's completely different. Um, and I also find that I'm more productive when I actually come back and, and continue. Um, I also do quite a lot of cooking, which is um, quite different than pathology, apart from obviously using a knife. Um, but it gives me kind of different things to think about. And it just completely takes my mind away from from my work, essentially. Yeah. And that's why hobbies are so important. And who's at home to support you? So my partner is at home. Um, she's really supportive and understanding of, of the career that I do. And I think it's really important to have someone like that because um, it's a very unpredictable career. So some weeks I will be very busy and, and not at home for the entire week. And other weeks I may be home every day. Um, and I also get called out at very short notice. So you have to be very flexible about plans that you make. And I think it, it takes kind of a special kind of person to understand that really because there's nothing set in stone and essentially anything that we do could change at the last minute. Um, and it's only really when I go on holiday and actually leave the UK that there's no chance that I'm going to actually get called out to work. So, yeah, it's, it's very important to have someone like that. Yeah, definitely. And what advice would you give to your 18-year-old self? So I think when I look back, um, I've put myself under a lot of pressure and stress over the years to get to where I am. And I don't necessarily think that it needed to be so stressful um, or that that has been particularly helpful. So I think potentially if I'd taken a bit more of a positive outlook at some of the negative situations that have happened over the years, then I might have been more happy in the journey to get to where I am. And it might have made everything a bit smoother, to be fair. Well, that's wise words there. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much for talking to us today and for sharing your career and life experience. Thank you to our production team, without whom none of this would be possible. And thank you to you, our listeners, for listening. Tune in to the second part of this episode where Matt will be talking us through a case. You can catch up on previous podcast episodes at www.rcpath.org forward slash pathology podcast. And you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I'm Natasha Cutmore and you've been listening to the Royal College of Pathologists podcast, Pathologists in Profile, sponsored by Sirdan.